Today, October 22, is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Avenus History Podcast. This is Season 2, Episode 35, The Ghosts of 1888, Part 2. Last time, we talked about how two young missionaries in Africa, named Robert J. Wheeland and Donald K. Short, grew to have problems with how the church was, in their opinion, revising their own history about 1888 and the message of righteousness by faith. Their opinion was that the message of Jones and Wagner, the righteousness by faith method that was uh, method message that was given in 1888 in the years following, they believed that was rejected by the church and that the church needed to repent and re-embrace that message. But the church had written books saying that they had accepted the message that everything was going well, those sort of things. So Wheeland and Short wrote this 200-page manuscript called 1888 Reexamined, explaining their concerns, and they left copies of it with church leaders in September 1950. So before we dive into the church's response, it's worth reading a little of what Wheeland and Short actually wrote. I mean, I, I always like this. It's one thing to understand the arguments that somebody is making, but... It's another thing to actually read the words that they use. That always helps me get a feel for what's going on because people are not purely intellectual creatures. We don't just encounter arguments, dissect and analyze those arguments and respond, right? Oftentimes it's the way somebody writes things or maybe it's the formatting of the page that can show whether somebody is adept at uh, using a computer or typewriter or something or if somebody's just kind of amateurish, right? If somebody sends you a text message and it's in all caps, even if it says, I love you, or I hope you're having a good day, like that that in and of itself, right? The way that they wrote that, the way that you receive that is, in fact, part of the message that you receive. So I always like reading a little bit about what they, what they said and how they said it and what the page must have looked like when church leaders were reading this manuscript, those sort of things, okay? And this is an audio podcast, so you can't see it with me. You can Google these things. But if you search for the manuscript today in Google, you're going to find it all over the place. I mean, there's copies of this everywhere, 1888 reexamined. I mean, you'll find it. But 9.9 times out of 10, what you're going to find is the revised version that came out nearly 40 years later. This will not do. The revised edition isn't so different in substance. It's not like they abandoned their argument or, or whatever. It's just different in tone. Very, very, very different in tone. Okay, just listen to these lines. Close your eyes, unless you're driving, don't close your eyes. But just close your eyes, just listen to how this sounds. Okay, this is the the very first paragraph of the original 1888 re-examined. Quote, Though we may boast of our achievements, regaling ourselves with statistical appraisals of our phenomenal progress, we cannot escape the conviction of our better soberer judgment that the Advent movement has fallen far short of the divine ideal for it. The conviction is deepening within the movement that its failure is assuming truly vexing proportions. It must be said, sooner or later, to our shame and confusion that we have not understood very clearly the reasons why the movement has fallen so far short of, a, of its ideals. End quote. Wheeland and Short rewrote this entire paragraph when they revised it nearly 40 years later. Instead of writing that the church's 
failure is assuming truly vexing proportions, they wrote, the long delay in Christ's coming deepens perplexity in the church and assumes vexing proportions, right? You went from our failure is assuming truly vexing proportions to the long delay deepens perplexity in the church and assumes vexing proportions, right? Very, it reads very differently. In fact, it says two different things. In the original, uh, in the original version, the opening line is, the Advent movement has thus far not made progress consistent with its prophetic destiny. And while that line is preserved in the revised version, it is tempered by a line that they added right after it, which reads, there has been progress, but not that which Scripture says must come. All right, maybe Wheeling and Short are responding to some criticism, you know, of just being so negative, right? Like, we've, we've not made, the Advent movement has not made progress consistent with its prophetic destiny. Then it just keeps going on along the same line. And, and undoubtedly, people must have responded to this and said, have we not done anything good? Have we not made any progress? Okay, obviously, compared to the ideal, whatever the ideal is, we're clearly not at the ideal. But haven't we made any progress isn't there anything to appreciate in what we've done? So it seems like in the revised version, they were kind of more aware of that, more willing to concede, like, yeah, of course, some good things have happened, but da 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 da. It's not that their original argument changes, okay? It's just that the, the way that they write about it, it's less zealous, in a, in a less, uh, maybe a little bit more balanced, more careful. So sometimes when people are like, why was this such a big deal? They, they pull up this document online and they read it. And they're, why did this cause such a storm? It's like, because you're reading the wrong one. Okay. And I'm not saying that the, the arguments themselves are inert. No doubt they're, they're uh, provocative in and of themselves. But there's uh, all of this language surrounding these main arguments, right? This kind of the, the word choice is often inflammatory. It's often divisive. It's often very, very critical. So if you're Googling this document and you find the revised version, you're getting a toned-down version of the original, all right? The basic thesis is still there. And let me reiterate that just in case you don't remember, I don't know, what we talked about a month ago. And that is, that is this, right? That the, the church rejected the message of righteousness by faith as preached by Jones, Wagner, and Ellen White after 1888. And this is why Jesus hasn't come. This is why the church has not experienced the latter rain. The church, therefore, needs to repent and embrace this message, okay? That is still the central argument in both versions, but the way that they argue that case is just much more tame, much more nuanced, kinder, much more kinder, much more kinder, much kinder, there we go, in the revised version. That's important to keep in mind uh, when we read the critique of church leaders who, de who denounce the document as extreme and immature, all right? Now, when you read the original version of 1888 re-examined, it's not hard to see why it caused such a stir. First, there was that startling claim, right? The church has fallen far short of its promise. Why aren't where we where we should be? We, we took a wrong turn a few miles back, and the only way to fix all of our problems is to head back and make the right turn where we went wrong. Like that's, that's the basic idea, right? You don't, you don't, if you miss your turn when you're trying to get somewhere, you don't just kind of say, ah, oh, well, you know, we'll just make a couple other turns and we'll be fine. Like the idea that, that Wheeling and Short are proposing is, no, you need to go back to where you made the wrong turn and make the right turn. And so that's why it's important to apologize and to repent and to re-embrace the message, okay? Now, at all times, there are people in every denomination who are dissatisfied with their church for any number of reasons. When someone says, I love the church, but they messed up, that person is is 
automatically going to get the attention, if not the allegiance, of those people. Okay? You will always score a few points beating up bureaucrats. Always. It's just, it's, it's a soft target. It's an easy layup. You will always do it. So in trying to understand, you know, what is the appeal of, of this document? Because let's be honest, the rank and file members of any church are, are not as consumed by some of these theological nuances as, as others are. All right. They, they, they're not, you know, how much everybody, how many people actually read this 204-page document and, and mastered its arguments and its use of all these Ellen White quotes, all like, you know, and other quotes, but like 600 of them in total. Did they actually go read the context of these things? Did they actually study it for themselves? No, I'm sure very, very, very few people did. So, but we have to understand there's, there's, there's kind of uh, themes. Anytime somebody wants a dissent, from the church, either it could be the church, it could be a government. There are always these kind of these these fault lines in a society or in an organization. One of them is um, you can gain some popularity by beating up on the leaders. You just can, right? Because there's always going to be some people who don't like how the leaders do things. So it's like we're we're going astray. We've fallen far short of where we should be. And anybody, anybody who who for whatever reason thinks, yeah, you know we could do better, is at least listening. They may not ultimately join your side, but they're like, you got their attention, okay? What's more, Adventism is, like other Christian groups, a perfectionistic and revivalistic bunch. We know we could do better. We always want to do better. Just just work harder, pray more, study more. Like, that's there's that, that DNA is in Adventism. And, you know, we know we're too complacent, too Laodicean, but anyone and anyone who comes and raises the banner of revivals and we need to get back to God, we need to do this, is again going to command some attention. If you want to start a popular movement within the Adventist church, these are some surefire ways to at least get some consideration. I'm not saying Wheeland was so cold and calculating that he kind of figured out how can I get attention. I, I, that's not him, okay? But he just naturally tapped into this undercurrent of dissatisfaction that was beneath the surface. And might I add, might I add, leadership is isolation. And time and time again in Adventist history, it was the people on the front lines, the people in the pews, who, who often had a better finger on the pulse of the church than its leaders. Now, the leaders have other things. They have the statistics. They have private reports from all around the world, right? They have a better view of the overall landscape of the church, the bird's eye view. They can see the entire body, but they often cannot feel its pulse. So you will always score a few more points when you call for revival and reformation. And by the way, these aren't the only two ways to do it. You can actually take the opposite tack and say that church leaders are so legalistic and da-da-da-da-da, and I'm here to give you the real gospel. Like, that's another way that you can go about leading a popular movement in Adventism and in many other religious communities as well. So either they're not strict enough, they're too strict, like there's these, these different kind of themes, and you see person after person after person who critiques the church. Sometimes they stay, sometimes they leave, that doesn't matter, but they're often playing the same notes, in, in their writings, in their preaching, when they critique the church. They're often playing the same notes. There's only so many keys on the piano, okay? Obviously, I'm not a musician. You can tell from the way I use that metaphor. <laughs> oh, maybe I should say there's so many, there's only so many chords, right? And you've, you've got to use them in some combination. 
The second thing I'll say is that 1888 re-examined had a deluge of Ellen White quotes. Okay, there are so many Ellen White and other people, quotes from other people. There's so many Ellen White quotes in this manuscript that it just, it feels correct, right? Because how likely are you to be wrong if you have so many Ellen White statements supporting your position, seemingly supporting your position, right? I mean, if you quote her more than the other person that you're arguing with, clearly that means she's on your side, right? Now, whether those quotes actually supported their position or not was debatable, of course, but how likely was Joe Adventist or Jane Adventist to actually look all of them up? Okay, let's say there were 500 Ellen White quotes. How likely are you to look this thing up? How likely are you to go to your Ellen White library, pull open all of those books and read, let's just say the page that these quotes are found on. Read 500 pages just to see whether, whether these quotes actually support the argument or not. Most people aren't going to do that, but they're going to be impressed by the sheer number of quotes that are being presented before them. Okay, Even most of the general conference leaders, as they, as they were working on their response to Wheeland and Short, didn't look up most of the references. At least we have no indication of that. Only one member of the committee, we'll get to this a little bit, only one member of the committee actually took the effort in their report to look up some of these quotes. I don't know if they looked up all of them or not, uh, but the others kind of relied on that one, that person's report saying, oh, you know, that, that, that guy looked up these quotes and says that they don't support the thesis, da, 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 da. We're not going to do it. I'll do that work ourselves, but that's what he came up with. It's this, it's a, it's a shock and awe approach. It's, it's a, it's a truly a deluge of information. Like you can't go fact check this thing quickly certainly church leadership is not going to do that because, you know, we don't have in the Adventist church, we don't have like full-time inquisitors, full-time like responders to, to various things that pop up. Like everybody's got a day job. And then, you know, if you're high enough in the Adventist church or whatever, you've probably got like a half dozen side gigs going on. You're preaching at camp meeting, you're writing a book, you're whatever. Nobody's job. It's nobody's job to study a 200-page book, look up every reference, check every argument, da-da-da-da, you know, we'd have to hire a thousand more people just full-time to do that. Uh, it's just not going to happen. So it achieves its effect. The 1888 achieves its effect by, by just kind of overwhelming the senses. All these Ellen White quotes can't be wrong, Right. I mean, I, I don't have time to go look at them all, but they can't be wrong. I mean, how, how can you quote this, this many quotes and, and be wrong? You know, you're impressed by all the work that Wheeland and Short put into it, and they did. They put in a ton of work into this thing. You can tell uh, they poured a, a ton of time, a ton of passion into this book, and it's like, well, it just it feels right. It feels impressive. And it's so impressive that people are probably not going to check. Okay. The third thing is 1888 reexamined was a compelling revision of Adventist history. It wasn't a 200-page argument over a single point in Adventist history. It's it's about 1888, right? But but the book, the manuscript, actually is a retelling of the entire Adventist story from 1844 onward. Wheeland and Short, they they start in 1844. They they rework who the bad guys are or who the good guys are in light of the 1888 message. Okay. Now, that's an oversimplification. It's a simplistic way of describing the process. It's not as neat as good guys and bad guys. But uh, 
but you know, we that's what we all do, isn't it? Like we tell a story about ourselves. It could be politically, it could be our family story, it could be our religious story. And and based on how we tell that story, the characters in that story get coded as good or bad or other, okay? But they get coded. So, for instance, you know, just to be even more overly simplistic, right? Like George Washington was a bona fide hero to Americans uh, for, you know, in the way that, that, that the predominantly white Protestant Americans told the story of America. He is a, a pure hero, wrote books about him, all that kind of stuff. Now, lately, in, in some circles in America, his reputation has been tarnished because, after all, he owned slaves, right? After all, he was party to a constitution that was not, that, 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 that did not live up to its ideals, okay? And so the story of America, in some part, has, has changed. And when the story that we tell about our country, whether it's Australia or, or Korea or China or wherever, the story we tell about our country, our people, our, our family, our church, when that changes, it always necessitates a reevaluation of the characters in that story. It also involves restating the mission and reshaping identity as well. Wieland wrote, quote, The primary end and purpose of the Advent movement in world history was the attainment by a remnant church to a perfect character, which would completely vindicate the sacrifice at Calvary, end quote. The primary purpose of the Adventist church is to gain a perfect character in order to vindicate Jesus' death at Calvary? Not, say, the purpose of the church is to prepare the world for Jesus' second advent. Not, say, to uphold the eternal law of God. It's not that any one of these three definitions is, is you know, right or wrong, necessarily. I mean, they're all authentic Adventist ideas. But the one you pick does reflect a slightly different purpose, potentially different values, and a slightly different sense of identity within this umbrella of Adventism, okay? So this book is a, a reworking of the Adventist story away from this general narrative that, hey, you know, we're doing okay. We're growing and making progress. Like that was the, the official church leader narrative at the time. Wieland in short wrote, quote, the judgment of history must be that the most significant and remarkable aspect of the work was not its progress as reported, but its tragic lack of progress compared with what under God it should have been. End quote. It's, called, it's kind of like two sides arguing about a glass on the table, and one's like, hey, you know what? The, the glass is half full. We're doing good. And the other one's like, it's not about the water in the glass. It's about the lack of water in the glass. You know, it's, it's also half empty. And like, this is how we're looking at this thing. And depending on your perspective, depending on which story about Adventism you believe, uh, it, it changes how you see your faith. Is the church doing pretty well, or is it failing miserably? If it's failing miserably, you might not have patience for some of the projects going on in the church. You might not have patience for the way some church leaders talk, right? Because the most urgent thing is we're failing and we need to fix it. But if you think the glass is half full, you have you you know you have some different you know you might have more patience you may have less patience with people who are criticizing the lack of water because you're like we're doing fine guys stop whining if we're doing bad it's because y'all are causing such a racket and you're complaining and critiquing and all that kind of stuff really depends how you see the story of Adventism in the 1970s a committee was formed I know that's shocking 
a committee was formed, uh, in which representatives from the church joined with Wheeland and Short, and they talked about how they could see 1888 in two diametrically opposed ways. Either it was, as one of Wheeland's seminary textbooks had said, quote, a glorious victory in the occasion uh, in the beginning of larger and better things for the Advent Church, end quote, or it was, as Ellen White had said in 1902, in which Wheeland and Short liked to quote, quote, one of the saddest chapters in the history of the believers in present truth, end quote. Donald Short wrote, quote, without history as found in the Bible, the Seventh-day Adventist denomination would have no reason to exist. The history of the Seventh-day Adventists must be known, believed, and accepted by them for just what it is. It's terrible to contemplate. We, as a people, have built up an array of ideas as to what happened at that remarkable meeting known as the Minneapolis Conference of 1888. We have published two views that are diametrically opposed with varying shades of opposition and with conflicting views within the opposition. This is the mystery of 1888." End quote. How we remember our history shapes how we understand our faith. Adventists have always known this because Ellen White's The Great Controversy is nothing if not a giant exercise in interpreting Christian history in such a way that it leads to the existence of Adventism. All right, this is not a major point in this podcast, but some of you may be choking on that. Uh, if you're Adventist and you're listening to this, what I, what I basically mean is it's like the Pope only does wrong in great controversy. Luther only does right. Why? Because she's trying to demonstrate that Adventists are heirs of the Reformation and that the Reformation was a good thing. And This is not meant to be a, a, a secular history on, on uh, the last 2,000 years. It's meant to show how Adventists are this, these spiritual heirs of these... Uh, movements, right? The spiritual heirs, really, of, of the New Testament and how, starting with the Reformers, people are actually starting with Wycliffe, people are starting to rediscover these lost truths, okay? And Adventism is like the final stage of that. That's that's the basic historical argument. And that's the purpose of great controversy, okay? And and, and this is what Adventists have done, right? We have to explain why is a Christian group popping up in 1844 and and you know, why, why should it exist? Why not become one of these older groups? Why not become Catholic or Orthodox or Lutheran or Methodist or something, right? Like, what claim can you have on the truth when you show up, you know, 1,800 years later? So Adventists have always been aware of the need to, to write their own history and understand how these things work, because it, it, they understand that, it, that that historical, that interpretation of history does affect our values and our theology and our understanding of ourselves, right? And, and this is what uh, Wieland and Short and the church leaders are, are kind of wrestling with here in this, in this committee in the 1970s. What happens, though, when Adventists start interpreting their own history in different ways? Does that lead to different strains of Adventism within Adventism? I mean, we, as we're recording this, COVID is still a thing. It's year 35 of COVID. Okay, it just feels that way. Right, but you have COVID, and you have Alpha and Beta and Gamma and Delta and Omicron, and well, eventually maybe we'll get to Omega. I don't know, but you have these different strains of COVID within COVID. Is it is it, you know when you have these different Adventist groups interpreting history, even in slightly different ways, does that necessarily lead to different strains of Adventism, different values and emphases and missions? Not not greatly different. Not not necessarily greatly different. Sometimes perhaps. 
But, you know, if your mission is to uphold the law of God, then you're going to definitely emphasize present obedience. If, you're, if you see Adventism's purpose as preparing people for the second coming, you might be, uh, your focus might be more transcendent, right, on the world to come more than this world. You're going to have slightly different emphases depending on how you, you interpret the, the, the Adventist history. Okay? And then that leads to the question, who referees or determines the correct interpretation of Adventist history? I mean, other than Michael Campbell. Does anybody else <laughs> referee or determine the correct interpretation of Adventist history? Do we need an Adventist history pope? And upon whom should we bestow that hat? Someone to say, this is the one true interpretation of Adventist history, or do we just let people study it for themselves? Church leaders begged for time to consider the manuscript. Like I said, it was 204 pages. They have day jobs. And this fell to the horribly named Defense Literature Committee, which sounds like it belongs in the world of Harry Potter. Uh, you know, the Defense Literature Committee at the Ministry of Magic or whatever. Anyways, the DLC assigned the task to a subcommittee, more aptly named the Committee on the Wheel and Short Manuscript. <laughs> we're just going to call it the committee, okay? I know there's 8 million committees in Adventist history, but right now we're talking about this one. The committee included men such as, and I say men because it's almost always men, such as Frank Yost, one of the, one of the uh, first teachers at the seminary, um, Milton Kern, president of the White Estate, W.E. Reed, J.A. Robison, both general conference secretaries who served on the committee. By the way, Arthur White, Ellen White's grandson, was on the committee as well. And they didn't do all the work themselves. They sent out copies of 1888 Reexamined to people like Arthur Spaulding, Mead McGuire, two old-timers who were teenagers at the time of 1888, wanting to get their perspective. Now, all these copies had to be sent back to the committee, right? They didn't want them floating around. But they sent them out, said, hey, read this, get back to us. Now, you know, like I said, all these people are busy people. You just don't send someone a 200-page book and say, hey, read this. Can I have your thoughts by tomorrow or even next week or even next month? in this day and age before email. So it took a long time. It took a long time. But by any standard, it seems that church leaders really did take their time to understand what Wheeland and Short were all about. It's just, it's just how bureaucracy works, right? Wheeland and Short, I mean, they hammered out their ideas from in between the general conference session in 1950 in, in September when they had to appear before uh, at the general conference office. So they only had a couple months to, to really write this 204-page book, and then the church takes like well over a year to respond to it. Um, it took a while. Now, Frederick Lee, the review editor who'd been born in 1888, by the way, was one of the first to respond. Lee was flabbergasted by 1888, re-examined, quote, these are indeed extravagant positions which could quite easily lead to a new movement out of our ranks, end quote. All right, so he's saying wheeling and shorts, like these guys could be the next, what? Can write the next Conradi, the next the next dissidents who leave us. He's alarmed by it. He he, he claimed that of the hundreds of quotes Wheeland and Short used from Ellen White, very few actually pertain to their thesis. The rest were just part of a rhetorical smokescreen. Lee went on to say that quote, "This work, which was begun at Minneapolis, can begin any time when God's people are willing to apply this teaching on righteousness by faith." But this does not mean that we must first go back to Minneapolis and overlook all the work that has been done since then. The only reason why the latter rain has not come to this people is not because we do not know the means by which we can attain it, but it is because of the same reason as it slipped past people in that early day, and that is, 
that we do not apply these things to our own experience. It would make no difference as to how many books were printed by this one or that one on this subject, nor how much light, more light we had in regard to it, nor to what point we retreated in our church history, if we did not permit the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to come into our hearts, causing us to see our weakness and our need of his righteousness, nothing could be accomplished by it. What we need now is not to return to some magical ground that existed 60 years ago, but we are to open our eyes today and see the holy ground upon which we now tread. End quote. We do not need to return to some magical ground that existed 60 years ago. Hmm. Frank Yost thought 1888 Reexamined was valuable purely as a compilation of Ellen White quotes about righteousness by faith. Because again, you know, we take for granted today that all these things are on the internet or all these books are readily available on Amazon or at an ABC or a church or, or something, right? But they weren't. They weren't. You know, uh, when they were banned from the library and obviously not going to get into the vault at the general conference, we in short had to do a lot of this legwork by talking to people who were there or who knew somebody was there who had letters and, and statements in their house somewhere, and they had to get copies of that. They did a lot of this work that was not widely available to people. People hadn't assembled a compilation of Ellen White's 1888 uh, quotes, you know, statements, or Jones and Wagner. Jones and Wagner, uh, a lot of their books were out of print by this time. We talked in the last episode about how uh, serendipitous it was that Wieland ever came across one of Wagner's books to begin with. And so Yost thought, this is valuable. It's valuable to have all these quotes in one place. But, you know... <laughs> The quotes are great, but the conclusions that Wieland and Short derived from these quotes, he thought, was a different matter. He felt that Wieland and Short needed to be saved from themselves, lest they keep giving into this bitter criticism and become enemies of the church. And again, guys, this is why I say, if you just Google and get the revised version of their statement, you're like, what is this bitter criticism? You know, what is this? What, what do you mean saved from themselves? You, it's much more apparent in the first version of it, okay? I'll just tell you that. It's much more apparent in the first version of it. Now, this was, to Yost, this whole episode was just history repeating itself. Every generation magically rediscovers the gospel and then realizes nobody else is preaching it. He said that it happened in 1856, it happened in 1888, it happened around 1919 in the latter years of Daniels' presidency, and well, it's the 1950s now and we are just due for another one of these revivals. Yost said, quote, Might we not well pray for a revival and seek to answer our own prayers? End quote. Another committee member said that the 1888 re-examined uh, manuscript reads like, quote, it was written with a spirit and at a time when the authors were mentally exercised and under emotional strain. I cannot believe for a moment that the solution to this whole question would lie in their contention that the works of Wagner and Jones should be reprinted, end quote. Then, in a, a wonderful argument, he just called Wieland and Short wrong. Just wrong. <laughs> he called their charges absurd but likewise did not recommend any discipline on the two men. Milton E. Kern didn't want to punish them either. Quote, if the denomination, generally speaking, committed a sin in its attitude toward the message at Minneapolis, I, for one, would not hesitate to acknowledge it. Whether such confession is necessary, I cannot say, end quote. And that's part of the problem, isn't it? Like, what does one mean when they claim that a denomination rejected a message? Does that mean that the church president rejected it? because he represents all the members? Does it mean a majority of the members rejected it? And who determines whether such a rejection took place? 
And who determines how best to rectify it? Who's responsible for rectifying it? Right? And, you know, you know, Kern, Kern was a shrewd observer of the political landscape in Adventism. He knew that several Adventist leaders would sympathize with Wheeland in short. Mead McGuire had already told the committee that if Adventists had accepted the message of righteousness by faith by in 1888, then, quote, we would have been in heaven many years ago, end quote. So Kern, knowing this, knowing it's like this isn't just a, a couple guys who are saying that aliens are posing as, as Baptists or something like that, something that can just kind of be dismissed. Kern realizes, no, 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 no. They've tapped into something here. Uh, again, this is before we, we have any evidence of any widespread reaction, okay? But, but Kern is shrewd. He, he, he realizes that there's a lot of people. I know some people who will agree with this. Influential people. Old-timers who have deep roots in the movement. I know some people who would connect with this. And so he advised the committee, quote, to brush aside such a challenge as this, lest we give comfort to the authors of this manuscript, would, I believe, be a colossal mistake on our part, end quote. We cannot afford to be high-handed and dismissive about this. We have to deal with what Wheeland and Short are saying because they've tapped into something among the people. This is bigger than those two, Okay. Now, that's a sample of the committee's response to the manuscript. Some saw value in it. One committee member admitted that, indeed, church historians had presented too rosy of a picture of 1888. And some, of course, didn't agree with the manuscript at all, didn't see much value in it. But everyone on the committee agreed that 1888 reexamined was too critical and too skewed in its conclusions. In September 1951, about a year after getting the manuscript, the committee offered three recommendations to the Defense Literature Committee. First, that the committee express appreciation to Wheeland and Short for their passion to see revival and reformation among Adventists, even if the committee couldn't agree with their attitude, their tone, you know, this, this critical uh, approach that they took. Second, that the Defense Literature Committee appoint two people to study 1888 and to send this study to Wheeland and Short as the church's official response. All right? And, and, and the third one was likened unto that. Now, meanwhile... Wheeland and Short had returned to Africa. They, they're, they're, uh, they got out of limbo with the church. <laughs> the church said, yeah, you know, if, as long as you don't go over there and cause trouble about this, we will consider your manuscript and reply in due time. Okay, now, I, I should add that Wheeland and Short were not dragging their feet or mumbling during all of this. They rendered what appears to be excellent leadership in Africa and would remain there for most of the 1950s. They also seemed to have obeyed the church's call not to agitate on this subject while the church worked out a response. And so the committee's official reply was sent out in early December 1951 to Uganda and Kenya, where Wheatland and Short, respectively, were posted. Now, the reply would, would never be sufficient. You know, if you put yourself in the shoes of Wheatland and Short. The church has taken uh, 14 or so months to work out a reply to your book that you wrote in like two months, Okay. They've taken uh, about 14 months to reply to it. They've shipped it all the way around the world to you. You, you, you probably, there's a part of you that just naturally expects, this is going to be a super well-considered line-by-line. They're going to look up my sources. They're going to respond carefully and, and logically. They're going to uh, draw from all the experts the church possesses, all these seminary professors and university and college professors, these old uh, wizened experienced soldiers of, of Adventism, you know, that they have access to. Like, you think of the resources of the church. They can go into the vault and look up sources. You know, and I, you get an impression 
from Wheeland later on that there was a little bit of like, uh, maybe they're going to find something Ellen White said that none of us know about that just completely destroys our paper. Okay, he doesn't say it like that, but he says it in a way where after the church, he gets the church's reply. He's like, man, I was expecting, you know, I, there's nothing in here that I didn't already know. There's no quotes. There's nothing from Ellen White here that I hadn't heard before. You know, so it's like, because right, when you're just two people and you're, you're contacting people to get, get whatever they have on Ellen White, Jones, and Wagner, you don't know if you got it all. You don't know what the church possesses in the vault or in these various libraries that you got banned from, you know, and there's a, there's a chance that maybe you've really got this wrong. Maybe she wrote a whole book and the whole book is against you and you just didn't realize it existed. Um, you know, you might be expecting this kind of reply, but that's not what it was. How could it be sufficient? How could this reply be sufficient? It was the result of a busy committee forming a busy subcommittee who often asked busy people to read a 200-page manuscript with 600 quotes in it and then asked for two people who were asked to study 1888 in its entirety and write the reply in just a couple of months. Yeah, I mean, the whole process took nearly a year and, you know, a year and a quarter, but it was the work of a lot of people and what they were doing in their spare time. It would never match 1888 re-examined in terms of focus, in terms of clarity, in terms of passion, or necessarily in terms of depth. Wheeland and Short have been studying this topic for years, a decade even. And the committee met for a full year to kind of get some feedback on it. And it wasn't until that year had passed that they say, hey, we need two people to just kind of study this. You know, <laughs> the first year was just, what are your reactions to this paper? And then it's like, okay, we've got two months. Let's write a reply. It was never going to be as in-depth. And so, you know, I, I imagine as the authors who had poured so much of themselves into this original manuscript, you know, you, you, you hope that you receive something like that in kind. And when you see the response, and I'm not saying the church didn't grapple with a lot of these issues in the book. They did. It was, it was a... Uh, you know, I mean, it was a representative reply. They they tried to pick up what they thought were the best, the biggest themes in the in Wheeland and Short's manuscript, and and deal with it, and throw some Ellen White quotes into it. Okay, but it wasn't of the same rigor. It wasn't as thorough as as Wheeland and Short's manuscript, right? So you, if you if you you get the church's reply, and you're like, I can dismiss this. I thought they would do better, right? Maybe I am right. My goodness, you know, I survived this thing. They didn't really throw anything too heavy at me. And, and um, you know, it, th this is what the reply was about. Let me just get to that real quick. Uh, the church, basically, Wheeland Short had been calling for Jones and Wagner's writings to be republished, right? Because they gave the true message and righteousness by faith, and the fact that Adventists can't read it means that they don't have access to the true message, right? So, um the reply from the Defense Literature Committee basically just asked, why would we republish? All of the good stuff of their writings is either repeated by Ellen White or else it's found in other Adventist works that have been written since then. You know, and, and against the insinuation that the church was suppressing the writings of Jones and Wagner, they said, no, we just don't feel the need to reprint these 50-year-old books again. Just go to a library and get a copy. Of course, maybe not, not realizing that not all libraries had a copy. That was something that Wheeland wrestled with when he was a student. 
uh, in answer to Wheeland and Short's call for the church leaders to apologize and repent. The reply balked at that, that as well. And they said, we don't think it is God's will for, quote, the present leadership of the movement to make acknowledgement or confession, either private or public, concerning any of the mistakes made by the leadership of a bygone generation, end quote. That's not how God deals with people, the reply argued. He doesn't make Joshua apologize for the sins of Moses in order to receive God's blessing. Quote, we have no need to go back to 1888. Those days are past, decades in the past. We need to think in terms of today. At this late hour, it is not our duty to deal with mistakes of leaders or believers of bygone days. After all, who are we to presume to repent on their behalf? Who has granted us the prerogative to judge them so that a confession on our part at this late date should be necessary that God might release his blessings to his remnant people? End quote. Wheeland and Short were told to just do their jobs as missionaries and let it go. Sure, some copies of 1888 Reexamined had made their way into the wild, but the church really thought this was the end of it. But those few copies of 1888 Reexamined found a cult following, and people began painstakingly copying out its 204 pages, and it spread further and further, day by day, slowly but surely. It would go, the whole issue would go underground for a few years. Underground while the 1952 Bible Conference met and celebrated the church's great unity. Underground while church members learned that William H. Branson stepped down from the presidency because of Parkinson's disease. Underground until it could come up again at the worst possible time for the church. So let's just put a pin in this whole Wheeland and Short thing. We're not quite done with it yet. But what's so surreal about this episode is that you won't find anything we discussed in these last two episodes in any publicly available source back then. Like None of this was in the review or Signs of the Times. And if you read Whelan's numerous articles published in the Southern Africa Division Outlook, you won't detect a hint that this man is under the General Conference's microscope or that some up in those haunted halls fear that this seminary dropout might be forming a movement that could break off from the church. I mean, it's just, it's business as usual in those pages. You know, God is blessing us. This is what we're doing. We need your prayers. We need your donations. Uh, we need your support. All of that stuff. Now, someday, of course, title shifts in culture and technology would make it impossible to hide something like this. But these things are starting to change. Even back then in the 1950s, it was becoming harder and harder and harder to contain these situations in the family, to keep them behind the scenes, to avoid public drama. It was becoming harder and harder and harder. Because, well, there's many reasons, but one of which is typewriters are becoming more and more affordable, right? I'm, you may hand me a 200-page book, and I'm like, I'm not writing that out, even if I agree with it. Give me a typewriter and a 200-page book. Maybe. Maybe I'll help make some copies. We can get this thing disseminated. Of course, today, right, you can scan the thing and email it. Absolutely. No big deal. And as I said, with Wheeland and Short presumably in the bag again and back in Africa, the church turned toward the 1952 Bible Conference. And after that, they commenced with one of the biggest projects in Adventist history. The Bible Conference happened, you will recall, in part because... Avenist scholars had begun meeting on their own throughout the 1940s. The, the General Conference wasn't a big fan of that at the time and wanted to bring those scholars under the church's roof, but that was it all. Not that we, we have all of, now that we have all of these scholars, 
Let's do something with them. Let's write a book, maybe several volumes. How about we get all these scholars together and we get them to write a Seventh-day Adventist Bible commentary? Oh, my friends, the story of the commentary is fantastic. It is fun. It involves pranks and secret trips to Florida, which is the best way to travel to Florida. You guys are going to love it. We're going to talk about it next time in the new year. We'll see you there. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist history content, then go subscribe to Adventist History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Adventist History Project. You can get access to Adventist History Extra on the website, which is AdventistHistoryProject.org, or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Adventist History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.